Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please grab your Bible and open it to 2 Peter, to 2 Peter chapter 3. That 2 Peter chapter 3, it's at the back of your Bible. If you don't have a, a Bible, there's a hardcover uh, black Bible in the pew in front of you. So if you go ahead and grab that black hardcover Bible, you could turn to page, see here, page 1080. Page 1080. As we think about what it means to wait for the day of the Lord and what it means to confirm our calling and election as professing Christians. Hear God's word from 2 Peter chapter 3. The, the number 3 is the big number, and the number, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and that's what we are going to be um, reading, verses 1 through 13. So hear the word of God. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming? that he promised. Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of, the, of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire, and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We know that you are God over the whole earth and you look like our brother EJ reminded us that you know the hairs on our head, you pay attention to us. But we know that you look to the one with favor, to those who tremble at your word. So Father, give us a holy trembling, a holy fear, a holy joy, an anticipation that we have just heard you speak and we want to understand what you have said to us. So Father, raise our expectations, raise our anticipation, raise our attention level, guard us from distraction. We pray that faith would come by hearing the word of Christ. For those who are not Christian, that you would give them saving faith and repentance today. And that for those of us who are Christian, that we would have a fresh experience of faith and repentance now. So speak to us, Lord, we pray. Your servants are listening. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us now in his power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9 through 14, just before he was crucified, he said, they will hand you over to be persecuted. He's talking about the last days. They will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You will be hated by all ethnic people groups because of my name. The men, then many will fall away, betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. I still like the KJV there. The love of many will wax cold. Because lawlessness will multiply, 
I'm sorry, because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all ethnic people groups, and then the end will come. Those are Jesus's words. And what, what strikes me from here, there's a lot of things that we could meditate on, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Many will fall away. Many will say that they trust in Christ, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And all of us want to endure to the end. Jesus said the love of many will grow cold. We don't want our love to grow cold. We want our love to stay warm and hot for Jesus all the way to the end. But some people who profess faith in Jesus Christ who say that they have been called by God as Christian, they have been chosen by God to be Christian, won't make it to the end. There are false Christians. There are mistaken Christians, those who think they're Christian and are not really Christian. It's not only the false teachers and false Christians in the churches that are gonna cause people's love to grow cold. It's even scoffers outside of the churches. Many Christians in churches even in our own church, certainly possible. Many Christians are drunk with the world. They're drunk with the world and sin, and they're living their best life now, as if their best life is now on this earth for this time, for what James calls a vapor of a life. Your life is a vapor. And many Christians pour all of their life, all of their attention, all of their focus, all of their treasure into this vapor of a life. And they're drunk with the world. Another analogy is that they're sleeping. They're sleeping spiritually when they should be wide awake. Jesus tells a story in the next chapter, Matthew 25, of the, of the 10 virgins who were waiting for the groom to come and they all fell asleep, but five were wise and five were unwise. The five wise ones had extra backup oil so that when they heard that the groom was coming, they would be ready. But the other five did not have backup oil and so they asked for the other five for oil and they said, there's not enough for both of us. We're not gonna make it. You need to go to the store and get it yourself. And so when they went, the groom came and only the, other, only the five who were there entered into the bridal celebration, the wedding celebration. And the others tried to bang on the door and get in and, and um, the master said no. And then Jesus kind of, he concludes that story by saying that only those who are alert for the coming will come in. So therefore be alert, be awake, be sober-minded, don't be drunk with the world. Don't be drunk with sin. Don't be asleep. Now, we're concerned for ourselves. Naturally, we should be concerned. We should all be looking at our own lives. Am I sleeping? Am I going to endure to the end? How can we know? Or um, how can we make sure that we endure to the end, being alert? Furthermore, how can we help others? We just heard about our sister Ruby enduring to the end. What about us? How can we help other members of this church endure to the end, how can we faithfully confirm our calling and model this for other people? Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, actually this whole letter, to help us confirm our calling and um, by extension, help others confirm their calling. So this to me is the main theme of the whole book of 2 Peter, the whole letter. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where Peter says, make, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Make every effort to confirm and prove that you're a real Christian. Confirm your calling. So I think the main command here, now going to 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13, I think the main command or the main goal, maybe the main intention, I'll, I'll state the main goal in a second. But what Peter wants is in verses one and two. He says here, this is now the second letter I wrote to you. In both letters, what do I wanna do? Here's what Peter wants. I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder. That's where I'm getting the idea of waking up. Because you could translate it, I want to awaken your sincere understanding. I want to wake you up, I wanna sober you up for your sincere mindset because your mindset, your understanding, your sincere understanding of the gospel, you've gotten, in, in your sincere understanding of the gospel, you've gotten sleepy, you've gotten drunk with the world, you've, you've lost your way, you've gotten distracted. And so I wanna wake you up, I wanna splash cold water in your face to wake you up spiritually to what's going on in your life in this world. That's Peter's desire. And how is he going to wake us up? It says in verse one, by what? The very end of verse one. He wants to wake us up and stir up our sincere understanding, our sincere mindset, by what? By way of 
reminder. I'm not going to tell you anything new. This is just like chapter one. I'm not going to tell you something you don't know. I'm going to tell you the basics of what you do know because you can know it and still be sleeping. You can know it and still be drunk with the world. So by way of reminder, and what does he want to remind or what's the goal of this reminder in verse two? So that you may what? Recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through the apostles. So Peter wants to remind you so that you can recall God's words. And he says the words of the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the words of the Lord Jesus, the command of the Lord Jesus given through who? Given through the apostles. You have Old Testament and New Testament. Now this is important because there was no New Testament in that day. They were the apostles running around teaching and they were writing the New Testament, but it wasn't all combined. But even though they didn't have a New Testament there at that church, in these churches, they knew that the command of the apostles, which was giving the word of Christ, is on the same level as the word of the holy prophets of the Old Testament. In other words, even though there's no New Testament in their hands, the way you have a New Testament in your hands, the churches already knew that the words of the apostle was equal in authority to the words of the prophets. They're all the word of God, okay? And so Peter says, I want to remind you so that you can recall the words of the Bible, the words of the New Testament, the words of the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament promise? If you want to, you can just listen or you can turn to Isaiah 65. Keep your bookmark if you have one in 2 Peter 3. But listen to this because I think this is what Peter is focusing on here in this passage. So I wanted to pick some passages from the prophets and what the apostles wrote so that you can get a sense of what Peter wants you to remember and not forget if you're gonna stay awake. Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 19 says this. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth for the past events, and the past events will not even be remembered or come to your mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy. That's what we say, the joy of the whole earth. The city of God is the joy of the whole earth. I will create a new Jerusalem to be a joy, and its people, the people will be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. Does that sound like Revelation? New heavens, new earth, no more crying, joy and delight. The prophets wrote this 700 years before Christ came. 2,700 years ago, this was written. Continuing in Isaiah, look at verses six, chapter 66, verses two through four. My hand, this is talking about judgment now. My hand made all these things and so they will come into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on the person, the one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. One person slaughters an ox, another kills a person. He's gonna name some sins here. One sacrifices a lamb, another breaks a dog's neck. One person offers a grain offering, another person offers pig's blood. One person offers incense, another praises an idol. So some are obeying, some are worshiping God, some are sinning. Some are worshiping God, some are sinning. But look at verse three. All these have chosen their ways and delight in their abhorrent practices. They worship God on Sundays, we would say today. And then throughout the rest of the week, they sin with no regard for God. They come to the temple and make their sacrifices and then do whatever they want. So what does God say in verse four? So I will choose their punishment. I will bring on them what they dread because I called and no one answered. I spoke and they did not listen. They did what was evil in my sight and chose what I, did, what I do not or did not delight in. And then look at verse 24, listen to verse 24, the very last verse of Isaiah. As they leave in the judgment and in the new earth, they will see dead bodies. They will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For their worm will never die. Their fire will never go out. And they will be a horror to all mankind. Revelation picks us up as the lake of fire where they're resurrected and they're judged and then they are thrown into the lake of fire and there the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is coming. A new creation, a new earth and a lake of fire to use Revelation's words, but to use Peter's words, I mean Isaiah's words, a place for the dead where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. It will be a horror to all mankind. This is what they promised. This is what they prophesied. And Peter says, I want you to wake up because a new creation is coming. I want you to wake up because judgment is coming and you're sleeping. You're distracted. You're preoccupied. So wake up. So not only does he want us to recall the Holy Prophet, he also wants us to recall the words of our Lord through the apostles. So turn to Matthew 24. 
Matthew 24, or you could listen. Here's the command of the Lord through Matthew. Now, it's not all command. I'm going to read Matthew 24, verses 39 to 51. I want you to tell me what the command is here based on what Christ is saying. So Matthew 24, verse 39, beginning in 39 to the end of the chapter. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away, Jesus says. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, here's the command, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But you know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also are to be ready. There's a command again, be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not. You don't know, you don't expect. Who then is faithful and who then is a faithful and wise servant? Okay, so who are the who are the faithful and wise Christians? Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Are you doing your job right now? If Christ came this week, last Wednesday, were you doing your job? If Christ came last Wednesday. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, the fakers, the fake Christians, the fake followers. He'll get a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you alert and ready or getting drunk and sleepy with the ways of this world? Peter wants you to not forget the command of the Lord through Matthew the apostle. He wants you to not forget the prophecy and warning of Isaiah, the holy prophet giving you God's word. So what's the main goal? Going back to 2 Peter now. Long introduction, but that's kind of the main point, and then we're gonna go into breaking it down in the following verses. What's the main goal? Here's the main goal. Keep a sober mindset. Keep a sober mindset. Stay awake so that you confirm your Christian calling and election. Pretty simple, right? Keep a Christian, keep, keep awake. Keep a sober mindset. Don't fall asleep. Don't get drunk with the world so that you confirm that you're really a Christian. You confirm your Christian calling and your election. And the way that Peter wants you to stay sober, he gives us three ways, okay? Or three, three things to recall so that we stay sober-minded, okay? Three things to recall. Recall that scoffers will come, verses three through seven. Recall that God is patient but not slow, verses eight and nine. And recall that the day of God is coming, verses 10 through 13. I'll say that again. Three things to recall and keep in your mind that Peter wants to remind you of. Number one, scoffers will come. Number two, God is slow. God is not slow, sorry. God is patient, but not slow. And number three, the day of God is coming. Recall these things, remind yourself of these things. Keep these things as the cold water splashing in your face so you don't fall asleep spiritually. So number one, recall that scoffers will come, verses three through seven. So look at verse three. Peter writes, above all, if you're going to be reminded, uh, be aware of this, or be aware, this is one of the ways to be aware. Scoffers will come in the last days following their own evil desires. So these are not necessarily the false teachers of chapter two. Scoffers is a broader category. It can be false teachers. It can be false Christians who are distorting Christian teaching, but it could also be non-Christians. For you today, it can be your coworkers your classmates, it could be those you follow on social media and you see their life and you see what they value and you see what they treasure and that starts to, to shape the way you think as they scoff the truth of God's second coming and of the judgment to come. So scoffers will come when, in verse three? When will they come? In when? In the last days. When did the last days begin? 2020 feels like the last days and biblically speaking, 2020 is part of the last days. Now, in the Bible, I'm not going to take time to prove it now. You can ask me later at the door if you want at the end. The last days begin at Christ's first coming, and it ends when Christ returns. 
So the last days are not the last five years or the last seven years or the last generation before Christ comes. The last days has been, have been here since Peter wrote this. Scoffers have been here. False teachers have been here. John says in 1 John, this is the last hour in 1 John chapter two, and that was the first century. If that was the last hour, what is it in 2020? So it's the last hours. It's the last day. It's the last days. That's what we're in, okay? And scoffers will come in these last days um, and notice what they'll do in verse three. They will come in the last days and what are they following? Their own what? Their own evil desires. They follow what they want. They follow their cravings. They follow their passions. They follow the ways of this world, their goals, their values, what they treasure, what they aim for, what they grieve about, what gets them upset are the things of the world. It's their own evil desires. That's what drives them. And they scoff at God they scoff at Jesus, they scoff at God's judgment and second coming. They will scoff at the return of Christ. Look at verse four. What do they say in verse four as they scoff at the second coming? They say, where is his coming that he promised? Where's his coming? Jesus isn't coming again. You said he's coming. What does it say at the very end of Revelation? Jesus says, I am coming. What's that next word? Soon. In 95 AD, 90 to 95, that's when Revelation was written, most likely, Jesus said to John, I am coming soon or quickly. It's 2020. Is Jesus coming soon, yes or no? Well, for them, they're saying, what does soon mean? I mean, is he coming? I mean, what is soon? So here they scoff, and, and what's their reason for scoffing at the second coming? Look at verse four. They give you their argument. And their argument, according to verse four, I will give you a, a technical phrase, an apologetic phrase, the uniformity of nature. This is their argument. Nature is uniform. What do I mean by that? Well, let's read it. Verse four, where's this coming that he promised? And here's the, here's the argument. Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Okay, so you get that? Everything continues as it has been. So here's the argument. The way things, because things were like this in the past, therefore they will be like this in the future. Nature is uniform. Nothing will change because we have thousands of thousands, or if you believe in evolution, or they believe in evolution, not they believe in evolution, but today scoffers might believe in evolution, um, macro evolution, and say that this world is billions of years old or millions of years old or whatever. And they will say, well, the way we know that is through science. And how do we know that science is reliable? Because science is, the way things are is the way they'll always be. If I drop this bottle five times and I have the sixth time I'm about to let go, what's gonna happen? It's gonna drop. How do you know it's gonna drop? Well, because it dropped the previous five times. And so they, that's what we call science, right? You make an observation, you see something happen, and then you make a prediction, you make a hypothesis, you test it a thousand times, and if I do it 999 times and it drops on the thousandth time, it's probably going to drop. And so they say, therefore, we can know that scientifically it's true because the past, the future will be like the past. And so today, not, I'm going to step away from this argument. Today, people will argue for evolution based on science. And this is what we might call atheistic materialism. That, that there is no spiritual reality. There is no God because we, how do we know truth? By science. And so as a pastor, as a theologian, as a in, in, if we're doing philosophy, my question is, how do you know the future will be like the past? How do you know this thousandth time I'm gonna drop it? Their answer is what? Because of the previous what? 999, but that doesn't answer my question. Why is it going to happen again though? Well, they're gonna say because it happened in the past. But my point is, sorry, I gotta get a little bit of the weeds here in philosophy, just for a second, okay? In terms of um, evolution materialism. Science doesn't prove that the future will be like the past. All science can do is observe the the past, to make the assumption that they could observe the 999 times, but for them to predict the future, they have to assume something that they can't prove scientifically, that there is a consistency to this world. You can't prove that scientifically, you have to assume that to do science. So science in and of itself, and, and as a Christian, why do we know that the future is generally gonna be like the past? Why do we know that this world has order? Because who created this world? God, and God is the God of order, okay? God made this world, and so God made this world orderly. So Christians are not people who reject science. We believe in science. 
But we believe in science because we believe in a God who made this world orderly. If you don't believe in a God who made this world orderly, I mean, how do they say this world began? By, what's one of the theories for evolution? By the what? The Big Bang. And so you have to believe in random, say the next word, random what? Chance. You have to believe in random chance for evolution. Well, if you believe in random chance, and I'm going to drop it 999 times, on the thousandth drop, if you believe in random chance, why are you so sure it's going to fall? In your worldview, you believe that random chance is what runs the world. So actually, if you reject God, you can't have any science because you believe in randomness. To believe that the thousandth time it's going to drop, you have to not believe in randomness. So people scoff at Christianity as if it's unscientific when you can't even have science without God. You have to assume philosophy and, science, and you can't prove that scientifically. Science needs outside disciplines for science to work. Okay, now that's how they scoff, and that might be how we respond to them. Now, back here, they're saying, God has never come. God said he's been coming, but in the past he's never come. Therefore, in the future, he will never come. That's their argument. And so, I was thinking about this. I think about this sometimes when I look at the moon, and I think, this is the same moon that Abraham looked at, and Isaac and Jacob. I'm reading through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in my devotions in Genesis. So I look at the moon, I think, that's the same moon they were looking at. I mean, so they might argue, that's the same moon that Adam and, and Eve looked at and Noah looked at. That's the same sun that Abraham looked at 2000 BC. Moses looked at that in 1440 BC. David looked at that same moon, 1000 BC. Daniel looked at that in 600 BC. The apostles looked at, looked at that in 40 AD. The church fathers looked at it in 100 to 500 AD. The reformers looked at it in the 1500s. The Puritans looked at it in the 1600s. The evangelicals have been looking at it from the 1700s till today. They've all seen this, and, and when has Christ come? When has the end come? When has this fulfillment of the end come? None of them have seen it. And you think it's coming soon? Really? It sounds quite ridiculous. There's going to be change? I mean, come on. How many more generations will it take until you actually believe, until you stop believing this foolishness that God is coming again and there's going to be a judgment day? I mean, live your life now. Why are you focused on Jesus and the kingdom of God and eternity? So that's their argument. And Peter's gonna counteract it with two arguments back, okay? Two proofs and a conclusion. Proof number one, look back at your Bible in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse five. They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water, okay? So that's verse five. It wasn't always like it was in the beginning. There was a time when there was no earth. There was no water, and the earth and water came by what? By the what? By the word of God. So hold on a second. The past, the future, the past hasn't always been the same. God created a world, and he created water in this world. Water here and water above the world. And then, so that's reason number one, that your reasoning is wrong, because one, it hasn't always been the same. God actually created something by his word. Look at verse six for the second argument or second proof. Through these, through these, through the waters, the world of that time perished when it was what? Flooded. So not only has God created by his word, he warned through Noah that there would be a what? Flood. God used his word and predicted there would be a flood and by his word caused a flood. And if God did that in the past, guess what God's gonna do in the future? So here's the conclusion. If the future, if the past wasn't always the same, but there was actually a creation by God's word, if there was a flood that covered the whole earth by God's word, conclusion, verse seven, by the same word, the same word that created, the same word that flooded, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Judgment is coming because the past wasn't always like the past. There was a flood. One time, the whole world was flooded. Everyone died except eight people. There was a time when there was no world. There was no earth. There was no water. There was nothing. And God created by his word. The word created, the word flooded, the word will come in final judgment. Don't give in to scoffers who scoff, saying, where, where is God's coming? That's Peter's point to you. Scoffers will come. Don't be shaken by them. Don't be 
scared by them. Don't start doubting God's word. It's going to happen. There will be a final day, going back to verse seven. There is a day of judgment and a day of destruction for the ungodly. If you're not a Christian, understand that God's coming judgment and destruction is coming for you. When the Bible says ungodly, it's not talking about the worst people in the world, the Hitlers, the murderers, the rapists, the kidnappers, the thieves. It's not talking about those who have criminal charges by whatever cultural standard you have criminal charges. That's not what it's talking about. The ungodly are those who don't want God. They don't know God. They don't know Jesus Christ. Because eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ, Jesus said in John 17, 3. And if you don't know Jesus and trust Jesus and value Jesus as your supreme treasure, you don't know God. You are by definition ungodly, and you can come to church every single Sunday and be ungodly, not Christian, not saved, without God in your life. Going to church every week does not make you God godly. It could be a means so Peter's point is, you need to repent. You need to trust in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, here's the good news for you. The good news, well, first the bad news, I already read it. There's a day of judgment for you. There's a day of destruction for you. There's a day when God will judge all of your works and destroy you in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. It's horrific. It's a horror, it said in Isaiah, to all humanity. It'll be the most horrific reality and it will never end. And the reason why is because God created you for himself, because he, lo he loves you and he wants you to enjoy him. You're made in his image. But God is also the judge. And if you rebel against him and refuse him and want his gifts without him as the ultimate gift, you will be destroyed with the ungodly forever. The good news is God sent his son Jesus into this world. Jesus Christ lived the life he should have lived. He was not ungodly, he was completely godly. He died on the cross for sinners and he rose from the dead so that if you would repent from your sins and repent from your goodness and your own righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord, master, as your savior who saves you from your sin, as your treasure, as your ultimate gift, then you will be saved. God is offering himself to you this morning as your greatest blessing and gift. Will you have him? Will you have him? If you will, return to him, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Christian church member, don't be surprised by scoffing. Expect it. Expect some of them to flourish while Christians wither in this broken world. Christians will get sickness and non-Christians won't. And you'll, you'll think, how is that fair? I'm devoting my life to Christ. And yet just expect scoffing trials in this broken world. Church family, you know how to counteract scoffing? I mean, where is scoffing in this world? Where do people scoff and ignore God? Where do you see this? Where do you hear about this? Isn't it everywhere? right? Everywhere. I mean, John Piper would say before, like, the most shocking thing in the news every night, this is when people used to watch news every night on TV, is that God is never mentioned. The biggest news in the world is that God is sustaining the world, that God is showing his glory through all these things, and God is never mentioned on the news sites. He's completely ignored. He's scoffed at, irrelevant to the news, irrelevant to what's going on in our political situation in America, irrelevant to the coronavirus, you don't, mention, you don't hear God mentioned in any of that, yet he's the biggest character in the whole thing, right? They scoff at his existence. They scoff at his activity. They scoff at his word. And we drink in this God-ignoring water. We breathe this God-ignoring air all the time. And so Christians, how do we counteract scoffing? You go to church. Why? Because... The pastor will force you after the sermon to, sit, to speak for one minute about what, he, what you learned from the Bible, and then you have to do it, and then someone else has to do it. You're not allowed to scoff at God for one minute. You have to talk about God. You have to talk about the Bible. You have to not ignore God for one minute and speak about him. That's why we go to church, to remember reality. You know, there are so many unhealthy churches, and part of an unhealthy church is that once they're done with the service, they don't talk about God. The rest of the week, Christian church members, they talk about the weather, they talk about family, they talk about friends, and they don't talk about God. The greatest person in the universe, the greatest treasure of their lives. And Christians and churches build their relationships with everyone but God. So brothers, sisters, church family, let's talk about God. 
Not just on Sundays, not just for one minute after the sermon, but let us talk about God all the time. He's involved in everything. Children, we've got a few children here. Children, listen up. Expect to hear different opinions as you get older. Right now you're with your parents, you hear a lot from your parents, you hear a lot from church, but you will get older, and when you get older, you're gonna hear more opinions. Expect to hear people ignore God and make fun of God and make fun of the Bible. Don't be surprised, don't be alarmed, don't say, my parents never told me that there are all these other uh, opinions out there. Your parents are teaching you the truth, but you will go out there to face the scoffing, and you need to be ready without your parents. So you need to learn your Bible, read your Bible every day, pray, ask questions, and learn as much about Jesus as possible so that you're ready for the scoffing because it's coming. If you're discouraged, brothers and sisters who are discouraged, don't trust the scoffers out there who want to increase your discouragement. Let me say something else to you if you're a discouraged Christian here. Don't trust the scoffing in your own heart, in your own mind. You get scoffing thoughts, right? That replay in your mind, you replay them over and over and it gets stronger and stronger. Shut the scoffing voices out of your head and trust the Bible. God doesn't mean to be confusing. He means to tell you the truth. Switch who you're listening to. Blessed are you when people mock you because they did this to Jesus and scoffed at him because your reward in heaven is great. So the main goal is to keep a sober mindset so that you confirm your Christian calling and election. We do that by recalling that scoffers will come. And secondly, we do it by recalling that God is patient, but not slow. Look at verses eight and and nine. God is patient, but he's not slow. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. What do we learn from this? We learn that God is eternal. God does not view and interact with time the same way we do. God is not submitted to time the way we are submitted to time. God is eternal. I used to say God exists outside of time. I'm not sure if that's a theologically accurate statement anymore. I need to think more about it, so I will not say that anymore. You might have heard me say that in the past. I'm sort of half taking it back for now until I think about it more. But God does not interact in time the way we do. God is eternal. He does not view the the time the same way we do. And, And look at verse nine. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is not procrastinating. God's not late with his second coming. The day of God, the day of the Lord, it's called both the day of God and the day of the Lord here. The day of destruction of the ungodly, the day of judgment for the ungodly. God is not procrastinating. He's not lagging. He's not late. He's not off schedule. He's not waiting with uncertainty. Man, I hope that person gets saved first before I can come because I want to come soon, but I can't because, oh, I just hope that they'll trust me. God's not waiting with uncertainty as if he's just begging and, and, and at the submission of all of these rebels on earth. That is not God. He is in complete control. He is sovereign. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Everything works according to the counsel of his will. So why does God wait? Why didn't he come after Isaiah? That was 2,700 years ago. Why didn't he come after Jesus came? Why didn't he come during the apostles' time or during the early church fathers in the first 500 years? Why didn't he come after the Reformation in the 1500s or the Puritans in the 1600s or the, our current state now with evangelicalism today? Why is he not coming yet? Why? What's the answer in the verse? God gives us an answer. We don't have to guess. Why is God not here yet? Is it because he's lagging? Yes or no? Is it because he's procrastinating? No, why is he not coming yet? Verse nine. Because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants more people to be saved. God wants more people to be saved. Just like Noah, it took Noah 20 to 40 years, maybe 75 years to build the ark. Was God lagging with the flood? No. He was warning people and calling people to repent because God wants, he doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. Personally, I praise God that he did not come in 1988 because I got saved in 1989. If, if the day of destruction and judgment on the ungodly came in 1988, I'd be in hell. I'd be judged. I'd be damned forever. 
What year were you saved? Not to say it out loud, but what year were you saved? What if God came a year before you got saved? And the day of judgment, the day of God, the day of destruction, the day of the Lord came, and God, he was done with his patience. Then you would be damned forever. Praise God, praise God that he is patient, that he wants more to come to repentance, that he wants all actually. He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance in the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. Praise God that he doesn't want any to perish. Now, when it says God is patient with you, he's forbearing. He's bearing up without complaining. Some of you members are actually praying for patience in your Christian life. I've heard some of you, we share prayer requests, and you're praying for patience. Patience means bearing up under trial without complaining. Okay? If you're complaining, you're not being patient. You're being impatient by definition. So check your complaining to check your patience. So um, God is not complaining. He's not flustered by what's happening. He's patient, waiting for those, wanting those to come. Now, we have a problem here because it says that God doesn't want who to perish? Any to perish, but, but who to come to repentance? All. All to come to repentance. Is this true or false? Does God want, is this true that God wants all to come to repentance? Yes or no? Yes. I mean, that's what the word says, right? But we have a problem here because do, do all come to repentance? Will some perish in the lake of fire forever? Yes. So what's the problem? The problem is I thought God gets what he wants. I thought by definition, God gets what he wants. If, you're, if God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance, and if not all are coming, what do we do with this? Is the, is, which verses do we pick? The verses that say, so well, first of all, let's go with the God does not want any to perish. This is similar to 1 Timothy 2, verses three and four. It says, this is good and pleases our God and Savior who wants, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is not the only place that says that. God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a different word. God wills everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It might be the second, the first Timothy one. We know what this does not mean. I just said it. It does not mean universalism. Universalism means everyone in the universe gets saved. It doesn't mean that. This is not teaching universalism. So what do we do? How does this passage that God wants everyone to be saved, that he wants everyone to repent, how does that fit with passages like, it says God wants everyone to repent here, right? How does that fit with 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, where it says that the man of God should be instructing his opponents with gentleness? Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Who grants repentance? God grants repentance. What does God want everyone to do in, first, in 2 Peter 3, 9? Everyone to what? Repent. But who grants repentance? God. Well, then can't God just grant repentance to everyone if he wants it? Well, yes, he could. Does he? No. But does he want everyone to repent? Yes. So you're, you're, how, how does this fit? Or let's just take the word want here, because there's different words for want in the Greek. So I wanted to pick the same word want just to make sure no one says, well, it's a different Greek word. It's not a different Greek word, at least in these two passages. In Matthew 11, 25 to 27, Matthew writes this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden, the, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires, wants to reveal him. So guess who gets the revelation of, of Jesus and the Father? Whoever the Son wants to reveal him to. That's the same Greek word. He hides it from some. He reveals it to others. Anyone the Son wants to reveal um, the Father to and the Son to, he does. Or take James 1.18, which has the same Greek word again. By his own choice, by his own want, he gave us birth by the word of truth. There's a new birth. We were born by the word of truth. By what? By God's want. God chooses who's born again. And does he cause everyone to be born again? No. So which verses are right? James 1.18 and Matthew 11, 25 to 27? or 2 Peter 3, 9. Which verses are correct? Both are. So the question is, how do these fit together? And the short answer is, there are two wills of God, or there are two wants of God, and they're both real, and they're both true, but they're different. So one theologian says there's a will of decree and a will of command. 
A will of command is something that can be broken. Like God says, do not murder, do not lie. That's God's will, right? That you don't murder and that you don't lie. But can people murder in this world? Yes. Can people lie? Yes. But it's God's will, his desire that you don't lie, that you don't murder, but it happens. That's the will of God's command that can be broken. The will of God's decree, on the other hand, is, is God's will that can never be broken. So it's like the will that God would predestine Jesus Christ to die on the cross for sins and rise from the dead. That's God's will of decree. Or to put it another way, it was God's will that some people would lie about Jesus when they framed him. And some people would murder Jesus as he was on the cross. Do not murder, do not lie. Will of command. People lying and murdering according to the will of God's decree. Which one is God's will? Both. But they're different. There's a will of command and a will of decree. And the will of decree is what God's ultimate plan that will happen. God's desires that will happen. And those are God's desires that might happen but can be broken. And if that's confusing to you or that sounds like a contradiction, let me tell you why it's not. Because you have two wants in your own life. I had two wants yesterday. I went to eat and then there was free ice cream after. And normally I turned down the free ice cream, but they had four different flavors at this particular restaurant. And I was like, this doesn't happen every month or year in my life. I I, got to do this. And so I wanted to do it, but I also wanted to respect my body that's lactose intolerant. And those are two real wants. They're both real, but only one's going to win. I won't tell you which one won. But... (laughs) Okay, fine. Yeah, I did have a little bit. I had a little bit of ice cream. And I paid for it just a little bit because I only had a little bit. But I, I truly, sincerely didn't want to eat it. And I truly, sincerely wanted to eat it. And those are not, it's not like one is real and one isn't. One is stronger than the other. Or put it this way. Sometimes you want to work out and sometimes you want to sleep in, right? Which one are you going to do? Whichever one you want more. But are you saying the other one is not a real want? No, the other one is a real want for some of you, right? Um, You can have two wants that are both genuine and real, but one supersedes the other, right? You you do that all the time. Whenever you're conflicted, it's because you have two wants. If you're that way and you're a human, how much more God? We're made in his image. God wants everyone to be saved. Everyone. He does. It's a real genuine desire. But he also wants to honor his son and the bride in contrast to those that are condemned to hell forever. And those are two real wants, and they're both real, and they're both true. And we preach them both, and we believe them both. Does that make sense? So God is patient. He does want people to be saved. That's why he's not coming yet. He will save more, even even here in Southeast LA County. That's why we're still gospelizing and discipling and establishing churches and spreading the gospel through Bethany Baptist Church, because we believe that God is still saving people and that God still wants people to be saved. So Christian... Don't get cynical about the Lord's coming. He's coming soon, but he's waiting because he's patient. So you should live with urgency and try to make Christ known as much as possible. If you're not a Christian, God wants you to be saved. He genuinely wants you to be saved. He's inviting you to be saved today because he wants you to be saved. Yet you must repent and trust in him. And you cannot blame his will of decree for your damnation. You can blame your choice this morning and the other choices God will give you before you die if you refuse Jesus. If you're a Christian who's stumbling and stubborn with sin and you feel like you can't break out of it and you know God's patient, let me encourage you, God is patient. But let me also warn you. Um, God, well, let me encourage you. God is patient with you and he can deal with and forbear your sins as you stumble and you're stubbornly wrestling through a sin. God is patient. But let me also encourage you and warn you to not use God's patience as a license to procrastinate. Don't stay stuck in your sin. Don't continue to sin and stumble and stay stubborn and say, well, God's patient with me, so I can just do this more. No, that's a satanic use of God's truth. Isn't that what Satan loves to do? Take scripture and twist it. He quotes that to Jesus. He does that with Adam and Eve, takes God's words and twists them. God is patient, just keep sinning. God is patient, they'll get saved eventually. You don't need to share the gospel with them right now. Don't believe those lies. Live with urgency even as you trust God's patience. But let's praise God that God is patient and he loves the world. That is good news for the world. Okay, so we need to recall that scoffers will come. That was number two. Number 
or number one, scoffers will come. Number two, God is patient, but he's not slow. And then number three, recall that judgment day will come. The day of God will come. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 describes it. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, heavens will pass away uh, with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. So the day of the Lord will come. This new heavens or this earth will be will pass away with a loud noise. We know that there's going to be a trumpet sounding when Christ returns. There'll be a loud noise. It's a cataclysmic event, just like the flood. It's loud. It's unexpected. It comes like a what? Like a thief. Now, if you know that a thief is coming, you stay ready. And if you don't know, then you're taken by surprise. And so when it says to wait, we're supposed to wait with, expected, like with anticipation and being on our guard because, because the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then what it says in verse, um, verse 10, at the very end of verse 10, the elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be what? Disclosed. Judgment day. Read Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. I have it in my notes, but I'm not gonna read it now. Read it on your own. But the point here is that your works will be exposed. Your life will be called to an account. Pastors, it says, will give an account for their shepherding, but all Christians, all church members, all non-Christians, we will all give an account to God and our works will be exposed. You can hide from your accountability partners. You can hide from your church family. You can hide from your family and friends, but you cannot hide from God. You will be exposed. You will be called to an account and you will answer before God and maybe the whole universe there witnessing. I don't know about that part, but you will answer to God and you will give an account for your life, all of it, your words, your thoughts, everything. You'll be disclosed on that day. So there's two implications that flow from this. Um, the first one is in verse 11. So if, if this day is coming, since all these things are about to be dissolved in this way, verse 11 says, Here's, here's the first application from it. Um, Peter's giving his own application. Um, it is clear what sort of people you should be in what? In holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God. So the first thing to do is if you believe this, then you need to be holy and hasten the day of God and uh, wait for God. Now, everyone in this world, because we know we're dying, we all want to live a life of significance. So you know what we do? we try to find ways of leaving a mark on this world. We try to find ways of being significant. So because we all want permanent significance as image bearers, we, we try to find ways to invest our lives. So some of us invest our lives in money. We wanna build as much equity as possible to look at it and feel like we've built a lot of equity. Or perhaps we wanna build our portfolio of investments and, and look at all that we've saved and all that we have financially and, and find our significance there. Some of us look to power, control of others, having others fear us, having ourselves looked at as above other people. This often finds itself in sexual immorality where you want to feed your lust not to serve the other person but to have power over them and control. We find significance there. There's also respect. Some of us want respect, so we chase fame. We chase a reputation. We try to do it perhaps through art, through, through art, creating art with words, with music, with paint. We try to create art, and if we're not really that good at art, we collect art to say, oh, look at all my collection of art. I can't create it, but I can collect it, and my collection's better than yours. Or sport, winning, winning medals, winning championships, fame through sports. People chase respect that way. And all, at the end of the day, it's legacy. People chase legacy. They want to be remembered after they die. So people buy wings of hospitals to put their name on it, right? Or they, um, they start different nonprofits to put their name on things so that their legacy would last. You know, Kobe Bryant, I'm a big Kobe Bryant fan, so I don't, uh, I just want to use him as an example here because he's been on my heart and mine, but um, he says the first stage of his life, in his career, he wanted to be the greatest basketball player ever. Then as he got to his later second half of his career, he thought, you know what? That's not really where it's at because everyone debates great who's the greatest and you'll never, you'll never win that debate because everyone has a different opinion. So let's forget that. Greatness is making my teammates better. So that was his next thing. Then towards the end of his career, he thought, what good is basketball by itself? Greatness is, and this was like before he died, this was his last thing was, greatness is inspiring others to find their true greatness within. And that's gonna go beyond your life and beyond your generation. He was looking for something eternal. 
looking for a lasting name. And then you have people say, he'll be, forget, he'll be remembered forever. If, if anyone who's not in Christ will not be remembered forever, they'll exactly be forgotten forever. I mean, that's exactly the opposite. I'm not, I don't, I'm not making a comment on his eternal state. We don't know if he called on the Lord before he passed away, but, but you will not be remembered if you're not in Christ. True legacy, he was almost there. Greatness in inspiring others to greatness. Jesus defines greatness for us. He says, the greatest one among you is the one who what? Serves. serves. Like Christ, trusting Christ and serving others. Like Ruby Sutter, who we just prayed for, and, or, or prayed for her family and thanked God for her. That's true greatness. Serving God, serving his people, serving your neighbors for the glory of God. That's true greatness. That's a true legacy. And so if, if the day of God is coming and all your works are gonna melt, all your championships, all your art, all your fame, all your money, all your savings, all the, all the things you collected, all the reputations you had with all of these different people, if that's what you're living for, at the end of the day, the world is gonna what? It's gonna burn up. And that's just an analogy here. I think it's gonna be transformed if you read other passages of the New Testament, but that's not the point here. The point is it's all gonna melt away. All the things you put your treasure in is gone. So what should, how should we live? It says here, be holy. What does it mean to be holy? And, and godly in our conduct. To be holy and, and godly is not to run from the world, but to engage the world for God's glory. But it's not to be worldly either. It's Second Peter 1, 5 through 8. What does it mean to be godly? It means to add to your faith, remember this, goodness, add to your goodness, knowledge, add to your knowledge, self-control, add to your self-control, endurance, add to your endurance, godliness, pair with your godliness, brotherly affection, and pair with your brotherly affection, love for everyone. That's godliness. Christ is coming Judgment is coming. Add to your faith goodness and love and brotherly affection and knowledge. Add it to your life. You don't have that much left. You don't have that much time left. I'm not speaking to the elderly. Speaking to all of you. Speaking to the kids. You don't have a lot of time left. God is coming soon. Or your death is coming soon. Be holy. Be godly. Look at verse 12. As you wait for the day of God, and I like this, and what do you do? You hasten its coming. What does it mean to hasten the day of God? Can we make God's day come here faster? Can we hasten it? Yes or no? Some say no and some say yes, and you're both right. It depends what you mean, right? I mean, you have to say yes because the text says hasten the day of God. So you have to say yes. Okay, always start there if you're, when you study the Bible. Always agree with the Bible, right? Yes, you have to. But no, in the sense that God's, God's schedule is coming and his will of decree is his will of decree, right? So how do you put these two together? Here's how you put it together. God has a set day, but he is going, what is he doing right now? He, he wants all to come to repentance, and how are they gonna come to repentance? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ, but how will they hear without a preacher, a gospelizer? How will there be a gospelizer unless they are sent? So God is sending people to the neighbors and to the nations so that they would hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, they get saved, and all come to repentance, and uh, this gospel will be spread, Jesus said, to all nations, and then the end will Come. So how do you hasten the day of coming of, of, of God? By living a holy Christian life, by loving your neighbors, by gospelizing them, by discipling people in your church and outside your church, and by establishing this church and establishing other churches, and then by spreading the gospel through other churches that are gospelizing and discipling and establishing. That's what you do. The more you live for Jesus and the more you love for Jesus, those around you, you hasten the day of God's coming. So take that one minute and share with each other and gospelize each other about what God pressed on you from this message because you will hasten the day of God's coming by doing that, by confessing your sins, by repenting, by gospelizing, by holding each other accountable. You hasten the day of God's coming. As you share life and share Jesus in holiness and hope, you hasten God's day or the day of God's coming. I praise God for the members of Christian Fellowship Bible Church from 1988 and 1989 because they shared the gospel with me and my family and they have hasten the day of God's coming by leading us to conversion. And I trust that me and my family, those who have come to Christ through their ministry are continuing to hasten, to hasten the day of God's coming as they gospelize and disciple and share life and share Jesus. And may that, that's true of Bethany Baptist Church as well. And may we continue to do that. That's the first implication. So the first, the first application is be holy and godly in hastening God's day. But there's a second application. It's in the rest of our, rest of our passage. Look at verse uh, 12 again. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved and fire and the element and the fire with fire and el the elements will melt with heat. We talked about that already. So verse 13. But based on his promise, what's, what are we supposed to be doing? What do we do? We wait for new heavens and a new earth. 
the new creation where righteousness dwells. So we wait. The universe will be transformed. Righteousness will dwell and a passion for God will be there. Righteousness is a passion for God's glory. That's what it is. A passion and living for God's glory. So righteousness will dwell. Our passion for God's glory will be uncursed and unhindered. We will love and enjoy God in his beauty, goodness, truth, and majesty increasingly forever and ever. So live in light of the second coming. Live in light of the second coming in an overwhelmingly inevitable way. What do I mean by that? Live for the second coming the way two people who are engaged are living for their wedding day. Right? If you talk to people who are engaged, what are they talking about all the time? What are they thinking about? What are they preparing for? They're preparing for the wedding day and what's going to come after, right? It's not like a side thing. Or graduation, if you're about to graduate. Or the birth of a new baby, if you're pregnant. Or adoption day, if you're in the adoption process. Or some big celebration or a vacation trip when you're about to go out and you're about to get relief from the daily grind of work for two weeks or one week, and you're gonna have vacation. You wait for it, right? But it's not just a passive waiting. It's a waiting with great anticipation that actually shapes your life today. You wait with it with planning. It affects your day. It affects your week. It affects your emotions. It affects the way you talk to people. It affects you. So wait for it with anticipation. Do you know what's going on on March 17th? Anyone here know what's going on on March 17th? What? No, it's March 15th. <laughs> March 13th is our anniversary. March 15th is the Sunday. March 17th is a Tuesday. Anyone know what's going on March 17th? St. Patrick's Day. You guys are waiting for it, huh? <laughs> With anticipation, planning. You can't wait. It's shaping your mind. You can't think any of anything except St. Patrick's Day, right? That's what you're waiting for. Yeah, Barbara nods. Of course not. <laughs> a lot of Christians treat the second coming like St. Patrick's Day. They know it's coming it's inevitable, but it's a side note. They don't think about it at all. They don't care about it. They care about the next thing they're chasing in this world. They're drunk with the world. They're distracted by earthly things. We treat the second coming like St. Patrick's Day, when it is the day of God. St. Patrick's Day is not exciting to us. It's inconsequential. It doesn't affect our planning at all. We don't think, you didn't even know what it was, most of you, right? <laughs> For too many Christians, God's coming does not affect us at all. And that's not how it's supposed to be, brothers and sisters. So let's gather with the church regularly and stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day what? Approaching or drawing near. Every, why do we get together every Sunday? Because we have one less Sunday to encourage each other. You're running out of Sundays with each other. Do you know that? You only have a few Sundays left with each other until you're dead. You got a few left. Encourage each other. Stir each other up. Wake people up. Children, your greatest joy will be the new earth. So pray and plan for the new earth to come, not your adulthood. If you're not a retired adult, don't chase the American dream, which is an American nightmare. Nothing against America. It doesn't matter what country you're from. Don't chase the earthly dream. It's a lie. Live for the day of God and the new earth to come. And if you're retired, brothers and sisters who are retired and those who are elderly, Hold firm to Jesus all the way to the end. Christ will hold you fast. And just know this, older brothers and sisters, our senior saints, you model strength and grace to us younger people who feel like we can't make it to the end. When you suffer for Christ and you keep going, bodily aches and pains, I think of Merle and Johelen, how Pastor Merle would always talk about, PJ, there's not a moment I'm not in pain. Or Johelen would say that. There's not a moment I'm not in pain. And yet she trusts Jesus. I still trust Jesus. God is good. Trust him all the way to the end. I think about that. Would I trust Jesus? I don't think I could. But if she can, and God could give her the power to do it, maybe God can give me the power too. Senior saints, you encourage us younger ones just by your faithful endurance to the end. So what's the conclusion? Let's keep a sober mindset um, because scoffers will come. God is patient but not slow, and the day of God is coming. Our Lord Jesus expected scoffers, but he was undeterred. Our Lord Jesus knew and expressed God's patience. Jesus lived for the day of God and he waited actively. He did not treat it like St. Patrick's Day. And yet, it says in verse seven, the day of destruction, the day of the judgment on the ungodly fell on Jesus. Christ lived waiting and trusting and hoping and yet Christ faced his own day of destruction. He faced his own day of God's wrath, his day of judgment. It fell on him. And to verse nine, he perished. 
though he deserved life forevermore. He was judged like a scoffer. Christ was treated like a mocker. He was treated like one who's living by his own evil desires and like one who condescendingly dismissed God's word. Yet, so Jesus, the sinless one, that good Friday faced the day of judgment. That was the day of God for him and for all of those who are in him. If you're united to Christ, Christ took you and united him to you and that day of judgment for Christ was the day of judgment for you. That was the day of God for you. And Christ took the judgment and you took it with him, in him. So that when Christ rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. So that you would wait for God with anticipation. So that you would expect and not be shaken by scoffers. And so that you would know that God is patient but not slow. Christ died for you and took that judgment for you so that you could live for the day to come. Because we will be judged, but it's a day of celebration. It's a day of hope. It's a day of consummation. And so we live with a sober mindset. So brothers, wake up and stay awake because if you don't, you'll fall asleep, you'll scoff, you'll doubt God, and you might waste your life living for the moment like a child living for their favorite toy or their favorite movie characters. But if you wait for God with a sober mindset, you'll endure scoffing, you'll live with urgency, and you'll increasingly long for heaven. And we as a church family will be more blessed because of the way you live. Jesus told us the love of many will grow cold. People will fall away. But those who repeatedly recall God's words, that scoffers will come, that he's patient but not slow, and that um, the day of God is coming, those who recall these words regularly will not grow cold in their love. You will grow in your love. The sober-minded will endure to the end. They will confirm their calling and election. They will be saved. So we pray that we would do that and help each other to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes to you. Wake us up from the sleepiness of this world. Sober us up from the drunkenness of scoffing and ignoring you. Help us to live in light of your coming. And we pray with the saints all around the world, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come soon. And until you come, help us to wait for you, to hope in you and to look to you to set our minds on things above, not things of this earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.